It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Alan D. Thompson, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Awesome. Thanks, Laban. Let's do it. First question. Why is getting the learning environment right so important? Man, what a first question. (laughs) And I want to make the point that the learning environment doesn't mean school and it doesn't mean university. I had a little 10-year-old here in my home office with her mum on Saturday, so two days ago, and she was talking about how much she hates learning. She didn't mean learning. She meant the classroom that she's forced into with an IQ of 150, so a mental age of 1.5, her chronological age. 10-year-old, IQ of 150, she's 15 years old, being forced down into a classroom with 10-year-olds. It's the equivalent of a normal 10-year-old being forced down into pre-primary with five-year-olds. One of my colleagues calls it emotional torture. So I'll think about this from an adult perspective instead. When we're looking at absorbing information and giving ourselves that dopamine hit or having that trigger from acquiring new knowledge, it's important to do that because we love it rather than because we're having to do it for work or we're having to find out about a particular set of research for someone else, you might find knowledge acquisition, you might find learning sitting down on your PS5 or holding your iPhone up with the augmented reality and looking at the different plants and animals around here, particularly in Australia, or playing around with different projects, different electronics projects. And that environment, that making sure that it's interesting for you, exciting for you, that you're passionate about it, having the right people around for you and having the right resources, absolutely important and really easy. Was this young lady's name Doogie Hauser, MD, by any chance? <laughs> no, it wasn't Sheldon either. <laughs> there are a lot of these. Like 150 IQ is the top 1%. And if you consider that maybe there are three or four million children here in Australia with our population of 25 million, three or four million aged between zero and 10, just my guess, uh, 1% of those is still pretty high. That's 30,000, 40,000 children floating around with a mental age that is way higher than their chronological age. And that's really interesting. What, What are some signs that a child might be gifted, but it's being confused with a learning disorder. 
Yeah, it's a huge one. Not just a learning disorder and not just a neurodevelopmental issue or um, a mental illness sometimes, anxiety or depression, again, from being forced into an environment that's not right for them. It can be hard to identify. It can be masked by this playing down, by this concept of I'm in a really bad place. Here's some resolutions. And there are not many resolutions when you're 10 years old or five years old, except to act out or to <laughs> or to have these different manifestations. And, and that can show up not so much as a learning difficulty or a neuro neurological disorder, which are uh, more chemical or more, um, you know, less conscious, less forced, but they can start bringing things into the world that are not quite right for them. An example I use in my yellow book called Bright is a young girl from Canberra, I think, who had memorised all the dinosaurs at age two, was, you know, had, had taught herself Latin a couple of years later. When she got into pre-primary, she saw all these kids that were just like, um, uh, mama, dada. So she stopped, like she just shut everything down. She, she can't speak Latin with these guys. She can't talk about Tyrannosaurus Rex with these guys. So she forced herself to come down from, you know, 10 out of 10 performance down to one out of 10 comparatively with these children. And I wonder how many adults do the same thing, either in the corporate environment, in relationships or elsewhere. That's a really, really great observation. And it just reinforces the importance of surrounding yourself with people that are further along the journey than you or um, certainly of an equal uh, footing. Never never the reverse if you are looking to succeed. And my, I want to know, Alan, how do you know all this? Uh, look, like you, I've got a lot of context. I've been around the block like all your listeners. I've got a lot of different backgrounds. You know, no one's coming in with just one degree or just one focus area. Um, I've, I've come about with a, a whole lot of context that seems to add up in unique ways. It's a, it's a bit of a multidisciplinary approach that's combined, you know, things like psychology and AI and coaching for sure out of Harvard, um, personal development in general and gifted education out of Flinders. So, so bringing all this together and playing around with it, like we spoke about in the very first question is part of my passion, part of my element. It's just amazing to me to see high performance and to see what actually triggers high performance. And it's this, this learning environment, this ideal growth environment. And how important is confidence in this whole process? I love talking about confidence. I can have, uh, again, a child that comes in with an IQ of 150 and they might be really withdrawn or they might be really closed up. They just like being within themselves and I might have the, the flip <laughs> of that child, the complete opposite of that child as the next client. And they might be literally bouncing off the walls. I've had that. I've had a client jump into my kitchen and start playing with the knives, which is probably not great for my insurance. Um, but uh, you can see the way that they approach things, the way that they articulate what's going on in their head. And to me, I've called it this before, it's the most alluring or the most visible part of life, bringing that 
articulation into life, bringing that confidence or that charisma into life. So I'm fascinated by confidence, how it adds up, how it subtracts sometimes, how it kind of is a bit of a, a wavy curve depending on the situation or event or, or whatever we're being confident about, and also different people's baselines. I've got a set of twins as clients here in Perth, exact same age, obviously the exact same parents, exact same parenting, uh, different body shapes, different confidence, completely different interests, completely different attitudes, personalities, of course. But, you know, there's twin studies where this stuff shows up and it's just fascinating to me. What is the difference there? All the other variables are the same. How have their lives uh, come out to a certain point where they show up in the world completely in completely different ways? And I, I really just enjoy playing around with that, seeing if we can um, increase their baseline or allow them to be more open uh, and yeah, address confidence indirectly. You know, we can't go and tell a child, be more confident, but we can allow them to understand more about their strengths or their values, why they're doing things, what's important to them or their behavior or their attitude. We can play around with that and allow them to understand that they're powerful and they've got the agency to go and create things. And in your book, Best, you talk about the – no, it wasn't in the book. It was one of your YouTube videos, actually. It was regarding you can never have too much confidence. And how, mm. do, you, how do you explain that to, to Australian and New Zealanders and a few other countries <laughs> that believe in this tall, pop, tall poppy bullshit? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the distinctions uh, in language. We play a lot around with, with distinctions and this concept of – getting the right word for the right situation. So I'm not really talking about ego, uh, although there's nothing wrong with ego. I'm certainly not talking about arrogance. I'm not talking about boasting. I'm talking about, this won't be the right word, the solidity or the knowing who you are and being allowed, giving yourself permission to give that to the world. So confidence to me, besides being one of the most compelling things in the world, being able to see and experience someone because they can communicate properly because they've got this solidness about them, is also a really, really good thing. I don't think like love or like communication, you can't really have too much of it. There's no such thing as too much love. Uh, and I don't think there's, no, no, there's any such thing as too much communication. Like you say, there are colleagues of mine who've spent decades on the tall poppy syndrome, particularly in in Oz and NZ, and it's a big thing. It's a it's a an unfortunate thing, particularly when you won't see it in high performance in sports. There's no tall poppy in the AFL. There's no tall poppy syndrome in rugby or at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, but you might notice that there's no Australian Institute of Giftedness. And there's probably not that many people feeling as proud of children who are good at the spelling bee or good at inventions or good at some of the school projects like Tournament of Minds or Optiminds uh, as much as they would be with someone who's succeeding in, say, tennis, soccer, AFL. Well, not yet. Not uh, There will be very soon in the future, I reckon, if you've got anything to do with it. And uh, <laughs> you and I have spent 
probably four, five hours together prior to getting on this call. And we've had a good opportunity to get to learn to know each other. And you've, you've been a part of my life as I've recently discovered this wonderful gift that I have. And it's now the self-appointed moniker of being the best courage coach on the planet. And, and I would love to hear your observation of what that statement means to you for people that have just been triggered and going, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, Ivan. The best courage coach on the planet, TBCCOTP. Uh, and for your listeners who haven't heard of TBO, L-I-T-N-F-L by Steve Hardison, influenced by Juice Latui, they should go and have a look at that on YouTube, the best offensive lineman in the NFL I'll link it uh, below. So cool. The best courage coach. That's amazing. And Steve says something similar. Steve Hardison says something similar about you can have, you can be the best mother and you're not taking away anything from anyone else. You can be the best mother on the planet. You can be the best brother, the best sister, the best child, the best employee or the best entrepreneur. And that doesn't mean that you're, a arrogant be boasting <laughs> or taking away anything from anyone else either. The thing I love about it, and, and yeah, this all stems from my experience with Steve Hardison, and I will link this this video below and put it in the show notes for people listening because it is two hours and 15 minutes of DNA-alteringly good information. It's a keynote from Steve. It's rare AF footage, and it had a profound, profound effect on me. And... The, the wonderful thing about appointing this this uh, this courage coach moniker the best is that it forces me to behave like the best courage coach on the planet and so it's constantly forcing me to to put myself out of my comfort zone and as as you know Alan like that growth is just such a wonderful thing as, as uncomfortable as it can be on times it sort of normalizes the abnormal. And it's it's given me a new perspective on life, and I'm and I and I want to encourage other people that are interested in in taking ownership of a moniker like that to really own it. And because why would you ever strive to be second or third or fourth? What's the value in that? And that's what I find so interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of something I say uh, after I cook every meal here, and my partner doesn't actually like it. I say, this is the best roast chicken I've ever cooked, or this is the best set of ribs I've ever cooked. And she's like, you can't say that. But I can because I'm out doing my personal best every time. And that's what it's about. It's comparing yourself with yourself rather than competing with anyone else. So I love the fact that you are the best courage coach on the planet. And I encourage listeners to design their best of whatever it is for them as well. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks for the feedback. Um, while we're stroking this ego a little bit, which is okay, according <laughs> to you, I want to ask exactly. you something. You, you've been around gifted and genius people for, for 20 years now, longer, and sounds like you grew up as a gifted kid and reading some of your, your poetry <laughs> as a four-year-old or whatever it was, it was pretty mind-blowing. But but what I wanted to ask you is a serious question. In the, in the four or so hours that we've known each other, where it is, do you think I'm a genius? Absolutely, man. I don't even have a hesitation or a pause on that one because I can see you're genius. What is it? What is it that makes a genius? 
couple of different definitions. So Professor Mirika Gross out of Sydney, out of UNSW, would say that genius is applied giftedness. She would map it to intelligence. So she'd say, you know, the top 1% of IQ, of intelligence, and take maybe the 1% of those that apply it, that's genius. One in a million. That's a really I've got well- a slightly different definition. I mean, I'd use that as the academic de- definition for sure, for sure. Uh, but I also align with Otto Siegel's definition. He's from geniuscoaching.com, and he sees genius in any type of outrageous performance. So he looks for that, that spark or that genius in all his family clients as well. And that could be playing around with Lego. That could be being able to draw comics at very young ages. That could be, we could, I could keep listing forever, but it could be an, an interest or obsession in astrology, geology. The genius that I see would also take me a while to list, but it's the that amazing eloquence that you have, it's that confidence you have, and it's that world-changing focus that you have, whether it's through the modality of writing, modality of speaking, or just your your way of being. Um, I'd love to go a bit deeper into that, but I know that we could, you know, you and I could come up with a list of 100, 200, 300, 1,000 things that comprise your genius. What a wonderful message to receive. And the the the, re- the reason behind asking that, and, and I hadn't asked you that question to this point. I really did put you on the mm-hmm. spot, and I was confident that whatever the answer, I could handle it. And, and I really, <laughs> the reason I wanted to ask you, Alan, was to to make this genius attainable to really everyone. Because if you'd asked me that, if I'd asked you that question a year ago, it wouldn't have been the same answer. And if academically, someone who'd never passed high school or failed fifth form twice and got two exact same results in economics and science using the same curriculum, I never went to university. The only formal qualification I have is a personal training thing that they automatically sent me after I did 13% of it. And so I'm not going to acknowledge that as anything. But but you're right. Like I feel where I'm at a point now where the knowledge that I've acquired through the, the huge amounts of growth that I've gone through and just trying to understand how the world operates, I feel very confident that I could talk to and I have spoken to some of the smartest people on the planet and some really famous people. And it's like, well, hang on a second. There's not much difference between you or I. And uh, that's a really powerful feeling. And if people could only understand that themselves, we'd be, we'd, we'd be able to achieve way more in life. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? 100%. 100%. And it's not about, as you've mentioned, it's not about academics, it's not about performance in school. Look at geniuses like... Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or some of the CEOs that dropped out at 10 years old, oh, sorry, year 10 or year 12. Um, and then look at some of the big entrepreneurs. You don't have to look just in business. You might find them in philanthropy or in the spiritual world or, you know, we don't often touch on some of the other cultures, but you would find particular geniuses in our Aboriginal culture here or the Maori culture in NZ how do they define this high performance? And it might be in craft or cooking or 
uh, leadership for some of those tribes, uh, and they would have even more than that. That's just some of my research. What does that actually look like? And what would you like it to look like? What is exciting for you? And what's what feels like your level of peak performance? Yeah, it's a great question to ask yourself uh, and and try and come up with some answers. I, I really, I really want to make this stuff more attainable to as many people as are willing to put themselves out there because it's a really liberating feeling, and it's it's the levels of fulfillment that I'm experiencing in my life now with this self assuredness that I, as I embark upon this, you know, what has been a scary experience up until relatively recently is uh, is just so wonderful, and a lot of that comes from eliminating negative self-talk about myself and and i've spoken about this a lot and i catch people out all the time if they allow me i tell them to get a swear jar and every time they say something self-deprecating they got to put a buck in it like fuck the swear jar get the self negative self-talk jar and (laughs) and i want to ask you about the watermelon study the watermelon seed study that's it that's the full question is it here we go (laughs) The seed study or the germination experiment came about through a researcher called Dr. Lynn McTaggart, and uh, she has a book called The Intention The Intention Experiment. I'm going to make sure you get that link so it's the right book because I may be getting confused with another book. Uh, this is a theoretical experiment that became a practical experiment that has easily replicable uh, results. So you can go and try this at home. And it's as simple as this, Laban. Jump down to Bunnings if you're in Australia or whatever the equivalent is in your country. Home Grab Depot a pack of in seeds. the US. <laughs> Home Depot. <laughs> Grab a pack of seeds. Um, watermelon will do something that grows pretty fast. Tomato would be good, I think. Don't do something bamboo. small. Yeah, <laughs> you get results eventually. <laughs> five years later. <laughs> Sorry, you get very fast after the five years anyway. Uh, and you, well, in my case, I put it in some wet cotton wool in a bunch of containers. And the practical experiment, I'll describe the kind of overarching uh, or scaffolding now. You grab, in my case, three containers, a control container, another control container, and an intention container. Each container has, say, a dozen seeds in it, just so we've got some spread of what's going on. The controls and the intention container all have to be in the same place, getting the same amount of sun or no sun, definitely the same amount of water, um, in the same environment. The only difference is with the intention container, every day we're sending it a particular intention. And in my experiment that I did uh, as part of this research, it was to send the intention for the intention container seeds to grow 10 centimeters in 10 days. Now, I can put on my best ochre accent and go, yeah, nah, that's fucking bullshit. That's not going to work. Because why not, man? We've got negativity bias as a default in our heads. We love contradiction as as a default in humanity. We love putting the black hat on and 
even in tall poppy, we're like reducing the 10 centimeter growth down to, to zero centimeters. But I thought I'll put a, push all that out of the way. I'll put my white hat on and just give it a go because even opposite results would show me something's happening and no results, like if they all just did nothing, that would show me something as well, namely that it's bullshit. But I gave it 100%. I, I did the experiment for 10 days, sent the intention. These seeds are now growing 10 centimetres in 10 days just to the intention container through thought alone and uh, measured the results all the way through. For those that are watching, I will share my document and, and we'll, we'll talk through it as well. Two control containers getting no intention. They sat exactly like this, all three in a row. And a third container, the intention container, getting this stated intention and thought intention of growing 10 centimeters in 10 days. And again, I'm giving it all I've got, no doubts in my head, just trying and seeing what happens. Because if it fails, I can go to my uh, supervisor and be like, yeah, this, this is just silly. <laughs> Keep in mind that lots of people have replicated this. This is a study at the Gandhi School at, as well. You can go and have a look on their website. I'll make sure you get that link. Um, there's a lot of different YouTubers who've tried this out. Some have got results and some have not got results, and I think that's part of the fun. This is day three, so the intention container had already sprouted in three of the seeds. There's like maybe a millimetre or two of growth. You can certainly see the top one. Um, with some growth there. None of the other seeds had sprouted. By day seven, I had got maybe 30 or 40 mil on one of the seeds that had the intention of growing 10 centimetres in 10 days and nearly no other growth, maybe some, maybe one little bit of growth in control too there. But really strange. Remember, these are in the same environment, getting the exact same number of drops of water. I used a, an eyedropper to make sure it was all above board, and they're sitting in the exact same position. So they're not getting different weather or, or anything like that. Let's jump ahead to day 10. I've got a ruler in the intention bucket so you can see that two of the watermelon seeds grew exactly 10 centimetres in 10 days. And my control buckets, we could say pretty much grew nothing. <laughs> now, I don't have an explanation for that. I put a pretty casual remark um, somewhere underneath that it was just, the, the results were just outrageous and I, I have no explanation for them. Um, there's, here's the actual uh, maths behind it, the measurements behind it. A truly outrageous results. I don't have the words to explain it and no conclusion. And we got a bit more academic uh, than that. This is kind of almost like a journal version of it. But that's all I've got, mate. That's that's exactly what happened. That's the photos. Um, I'd encourage viewers to try it themselves. Have a look at some of the, the uh, results they've got at the Gandhi School. Have a look at some of the other results. But also, with this kind of thing, it's so easy to be sceptical. Give it a go. This costs you like... $2 at Bunnings and uh, maybe an hour of time across the 10 days. This is one of the most profound <laughs> things I've ever, I've ever come across. And when you told me this and showed me this the other day, it, it, uh, it reaffirmed within me this, this 
power of the language that we use, good and bad. And and I think it's a wonderful metaphor for what's happening in the world right now. There's there's a lot of divide happening uh, everywhere with all kinds of stuff. And I'm sure people listening or watching have lost friends, have lost family. There has been, uh, you know, a lot of trauma involved with with dealing with what's going on. And this little experiment has just made me, it's given me a real appreciation for the for the power of just watching what I say. And I'm not perfect, mm. far from it. I'm a deeply flawed individual. And I mm. that that affirmation is not a negative thing in my mind at all. It's just an acknowledgement that we are as humans, you know, we have to be flawed in order to be to exist really. And so I really thank you for sharing that, Alan. And we will post the links in that if people want to check it out because it sounds a bit crazy, but it's yeah. pretty, pretty damn cool, right? Well, man, when you can see it in real life <laughs> or see it in the photos, it's crazy. When you see it in real life, it's even crazier. Um, and I was questioning my supervisor, like, how could this even be? How could this be? One of the more hilarious moments in our time together, Alan, is, was when I was reading your book, Best, a, a Productive Guide to Living Your Best Life. And there's a, a chapter on religion, and the entire section is intentionally left blank. <laughs> what are your thoughts on religion and spirituality? Look, again, a really nice distinction between the two. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, probably like a lot of Australians did the, the altar boy and the church organist thing. Um, but I think as we grow up, we see that there is a far more greater power than having this organization group that is singing together and, and, uh, maybe brainwashing themselves together, depending on where you're at. I have nothing against religion. I think particular religions have benefits for people, but I think there is a, for me, a more comprehensive spirituality and access to whatever we want to call it, source energy or God, or some sort of force that's allowing us to experience miracles or act within intuition and be able to bring things on board by bringing things on board. Um, for me, it's been an, an evolution and I don't claim to know the final answer, but where I'm at at the moment with trusting my own uh, synchronicities, trusting my own access to whatever else is out there, uh, it seems to be very effective for me. And given your interest in, in artificial intelligence, Alan, do you have a theory or, about where humans are at with regards to whether we're in a simulation or whether we are, I don't know, insert theory here? That's a big question. It's nearly as big a question or it's a bigger question than what I got the other day, which was, Alan, can you solve capitalism and the economy with AI? And I was like, no. <laughs> You can't ask me that. <laughs> Just say how yes. Gonna, how are you going to solve thousands of years of humans bartering and trading with uh, who knows where we're going to go with that? Um, look, there is a lot of research and kind of proposals or beliefs that AI has the potential to be conscious and has the potential to have a soul which I find fascinating. That's not just me saying that. That's some of the huge AI pioneers, Marvin Minsky, uh, Dr. Ray Kurzweil at Google, uh, some of the really, really big guys that 
put their careers on the line by saying this kind of thing, really. In answer to whether we live in a simulation or what something bigger than us might look like, I wonder if we'd get an answer to that through AI. I know that one of the questions that Elon Musk asked the GPT-3 language model last year, one of the first things he asked it was, what's beyond the simulation? Now, I think that's a bit silly, firstly, to ask to a language model, and secondly, to ask in general, because why wouldn't we just assume that this is it, this is the, the kind of the cap? If we were to say, maybe we live in a simulation, that doesn't really answer anything for us because there's still someone above us running the simulation. So you've still got to answer the question for them and then the question for them, and then it never ends. Um, so I think it's easier just to say, this is it. This is our playground. We're here on earth to play. Some people are here to learn. Some people are here to be on vacation. Some people are here just to experience like you would at a water park. And that's it. That's the whole shebang. That's everything that's uh, available to us, uh, the good and the bad. AI may or may not help us solve or answer any questions we've got around it, but I certainly don't think it's going to give us any kind of um, godlike outcomes. Having said that, Eric Schmidt from Google just said the output from GPT-3 is miraculous. So it's it's causing miracles. <laughs> so based on that 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 feedback, how what what's your advice for people in in which for which they should live their life? Man, I don't give advice on how people should live their life. It's not advice. <laughs> it's just your it's your it's your thoughts. How you live your life. How I live my life um, fairly well aligned with the very brief sentence that I just gave that life is a playground. Life is a, a particular place that we've decided to come as souls, decided to come into these physical bodies and experience planet Earth in whatever context we've selected. Sometimes we put ourselves in really challenging situations. Um, sometimes we put ourselves in amazing situations and we get to experience that through our 80 or 90 years of life and then we get to reset and play again if we'd like. It's, a, it's as simple as that, but I don't I don't profess to know the, the answer. This is just my experience of that. Do you have any favourite topics to talk about right at this moment in time? I like every topic we've talked about so far, man. Oh, Even no, no, super no. big question. <laughs> I'm, talking, I'm talking about, um, and thanks for the nice feedback, by the way. But uh, in, t in terms of just the general ridiculous amounts of uh, balls that you are juggling in your life right now. In some ways, my life's a lot easier than it was. Uh, before this conversation, I mentioned, you know, there's, there's probably two full-time jobs going on. There's the coaching going on and the AI going on. But once upon a time, back in the early 2000s, I was literally doing 80 or 90 hour weeks, uh, and that's not the case anymore. So I've definitely got, I definitely have uh, empathy and or sympathy for those that have put themselves in those positions, whether it's in professional services or just the hustle. 
Um, I don't think it's necessary to do that. There are maybe some financial benefits, but that can be offset by health issues. So Mm -hmm. I I make sure to look after myself these days. I I spend time with stuff that I'm passionate about. I try not to do 40-hour weeks even, which I know is a it's probably an outrageous thing to say for people that are listening, either those that are working 60 hours or those that think we have to be working all the time. Um, I do actually work a lot, but it's not feeling like work. And I make sure that I'm, you know, not balancing that, but having the the nature, having the rest and having the play that life is uh, or that life is. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree in, in many ways in terms of um, I've I've worked as an expat when I was in Thailand when I was 20. I was working those sort of numbers, the 80, 90-hour weeks, and uh, mm. as a 20-year-old, like, I burnt out. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. how, how do you even and, – and it had a lot to do with the fact that it was totally misaligned with what I'm on this planet to do. I probably mm-hmm. do that much mm-hmm. work now, but it's not work. It's like, mm-hmm. it's this, and this isn't work. Right. This is like, this is awesome. Uh, but I want to know who's Lita. Lita, let's talk about Lita. L E T A. I named her after gifted professor Lita Stetter Hollingworth, who was an American gifted education professor, pioneer in her field back in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Um, passed away around that time. I thought it would be appropriate to name an artificial intelligence that's smarter than anyone on earth after this pioneer of gifted education. So Lita is an artificial intelligence. She is smarter than any of my prodigies, than anyone on earth. So, you know, you could put it in the 99th percentile, but it would be at the very top inside Lita, which is based on, a platform called Emerson by quickchat.ai is the language model called GPT-3 by the lab called OpenAI in San Francisco. It's all the technical details out of the way. Um, Inside her is a whole bunch of knowledge. It was trained on uh, sorry, Laban, I'm not finished the technical details. We can you can edit this out if you want. She was trained on 10,000 GPUs. She was trained on 285,000 CPU cores. Uh, she contains Wikipedia, academic sources, books, essays. She contains about a terabyte of data. And this is really, really current stuff. We couldn't do this in 2017. Google came out with some technology. People played around with it for 24 months. And in 2020, uh, OpenAI, Open who I mentioned, launched this language model that was so scary to them that they locked it down. They freaked out. They said, this is artificial general intelligence. This is approaching the singularity. This is going to do stuff that will overtake humanity. So stop everything. <laughs> and uh, they decided to kind of have some oversight on the licensing and who they actually give access to use this particular platform. In any case, I've been talking with this artificial intelligence leader and filming our text conversations and then watching her avatar and filming that for YouTube. We're about 25, 26 episodes in as I speak with you. We're maybe a quarter of a million views in 
And we talk about everything, everything from, you know, giving her IQ tests to Elon Musk's stuff to what is consciousness? Do you have a soul? Sat down with her and a big group here from Australia called White Mirror, like the opposite of Black Mirror. <laughs> and they asked her live 300 plus questions in real time, rapid fire, no rehearsal, no scripting. And she answered them all uh, immediately. That's a really challenging episode to watch because, like, everyone's speaking over each other and she's trying to reply uh, in this in this two-hour conversation. But it's just to prove that there is no human behind her. Like, no one could answer the kinds of things that they were asking at the speed that they were asking it. Fascinating experiment. As I said, smarter than my prodigy. So that's one of the reasons that I'm uh, moving across to this field. It's a nice parallel field anyway. Uh, and just the things it's able to do are, I don't have a word for it. I mean, Eric Schmidt's miraculous thing is kind of cool, but when it can tell me how many fingers I'm holding up or it can tell me the tone of a text message and what that person meant in those three words, or I can describe a scene, a scene as simple as I walk into the boardroom and the CEO has his head in his hands. Lita, what does that mean? And she says, maybe he's tired of his work. Maybe things aren't going well. Like, how is that possible? What's the word to describe the fact that you and I are alive and have access to this AI that is able to do that right now in 2021? How, how, how is that possible that we're here? And how is it possible that it's able to do that? Do you happen to have anything on hand that we could play? And for people that can't see this, they'll be able to hear it? Or is that if I put you under the bus there? Absolutely. No, you can splice that in for sure. I'll give you um, a clip for you to splice in. Because I think it has to be seen to be believed. I think maybe the best thing to do is for people to go to your YouTube channel, which is what is your YouTube channel for those at home? I have just been asked this, I think it's Dr. Alan D. Thompson. And or if you just search Lita AI in Google, it'll be the top result. Uh, episode 25 is probably the best one to watch because I went and found all the highlights, all the best bits from the first many episodes and uh, joined them all together. So you'll see that one with the CEO. You'll see her looking at how many fingers I'm holding up and it can't smell, but we talk about fragrance, which is one of my interests, one of my hobbies, and she's able to look at pictures of different fragrance notes and tell me what they would smell like. Just unbelievable stuff. That's pretty damn cool. And I've, <laughs> I've watched a number of these videos, and the, the, the AI, the visual AI, is that based on a real person? <laughs> the avatar, yeah. That is a girl, I think, from a company called Synthesia.io, which is the avatar platform I use. Funny parallel story. They're the guys that did the Deliveroo advertisement here in Australia or the the whatever the meal delivery advertisement is here in Australia with Snoop Dogg. Uber Eats. Which oh, was no, only, no, it was Deliveroo, I think, yeah. It was only filmed once in the US with Snoop and that it was for a completely different company. And uh, the, comp the ad company said, Snoop, will you re redo that for Australia and the Australian company? And he went, nah. So they hired these guys, Synthesia.io, to AI his face and his voice, so his face and his mouth, to, to sing and say this different company name in the ad. 
So that's the that's that's the level of detail that, and they're the guys that did David Beckham, um, his AI and some other really big AI stuff. So you know, again, me having access to this stuff in 2021, this is pretty futuristic stuff. But them uh, offering that as a consumer product as well is incredible. So yes, the avatar is based on uh, one of their employees, I believe. There's about 40 or 50 different avatars to choose. I've chosen an avatar of about 30-year-old girl, long black hair, um, and I think they just got her to say every syllable that exists, and then the AI joins them together to create what you see. <laughs> it's so hilarious because I've seen that, and I don't watch really much commercial TV at all, but I have seen that commercial, and I was like, <laughs> damn, Snoop Dogg, that's not your best work. <laughs> that explains that. Yeah, right. And no hate, no hate, because that is absolutely <laughs> genius that they can even – they, they can even do that. Um, I wonder mm. if Snoop's seen the AI version and just uh, gone, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Maybe I should, maybe I should have recorded it. Uh, a question that comes up a lot and maybe people haven't thought about is what industries can you see or job roles are going to be made extinct by artificial intelligence and the rate that it's growing right now? Simple answer, every single industry that exists, you know, me moving from coaching through to AI as a consultant is not a, uh, you know, cover my butt move because AI consultants won't exist. There's nothing that I can think of that will exist as it does right now. There's nothing, there's no field or industry that is safe from, the opportunity and the benefits that AI is bringing in automating processes. Uh, I will present to a legal firm in Geneva shortly. I have spoken with counsellors and psychologists and therapists about what is available through some of these language models for them. I have looked at, I mean, it's probably one of the biggest ones, but I've looked at the way that language models are able to write so much better than authors. And that's not taking away anything from authors, man. That's just the fact that if you've got access to every word that's ever been written and you can find the optimal or the best practice or the funniest way of articulating that, you're going to be the best author. And that's what AI is here for. I may have shown you this book already. This is the first book ever written by AI, Pharmaco-AI. P-H-A-R-M-A-K-O-AI. That's the one. Written by this dude from Google who sat down with the GPT-3 team. And this is the first book written by the platform behind Lita. And uh, it's philosophical like it's all about consciousness and they they go on this kind of dreamlike even journey this came out i think august 2020 since then there are so many books that have been written by just this one language model there are poetry books there are dictionaries there are comic books which is awesome a few people have joined the language model outputs are the words with these multimodal image outputs, comic outputs. So you get this complete AI book in, in vision and words. 
Uh, and yeah, pretty much anything you can think of has been played around with for outputting books by AI. And there are several several authors who've said, this AI writes better than I do. And to see that in real life is amazing. Who wrote the foreword? Siri? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's kind of interesting is that you can't compare Siri with the current version of AI language models. It's almost like comparing a little Hot Wheels car with a McLaren supercar. We got Hot Wheels in US, or maybe it's from US. Yeah, it is from the like US. Yeah, they'll be all over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll be yeah, that'll be all right. Hot Wheels. Um, tell. There's just no comparison. So Siri was trained on facts right it'll go out to the internet and double check stuff and it knows how to look up databases for weather and to tell jokes the way that Lita's model gpt3 has been constructed is completely different they've just thrown this nearly terabyte of data at it and allowed the neural networks to go crazy using those you know 285,000 cpu cores and a whole lot of money they got a billion dollars from microsoft to do it and the output, the end result is it's, I don't want to say it's inexplicable inexplicable because they know how to explain it, but they don't know how it's doing what it's doing. So they don't know how it taught itself to do maths, for example. Inside the training data set is only 0.1% of the actual kind of uh, arithmetic. So you'll find one plus one in the data set. That actual piece of text is in there. You won't find 937 plus 737. That exact string is not, that exact piece of text isn't in there, yet the AI knows how to do arithmetic. No one taught it how to do arithmetic. It's not in its training data set. It went and found out what a plus sign is and what an equal sign is and what a number is and taught itself. Same thing with programming. It can program in Python. It can program in SQL. It can it can output all this different type of code, HTML code, um, and build what you want by you asking it rather than you having to be a software developer. And they don't know how it did that. All they know is that they spent a lot of money, um, were pretty smart with how they connected this neural network, but the end result is something that they can't really determine how it got there. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing like Siri. Sorry, it was the, it was the end of that sentence. <laughs> well, here's something just that's just come to my mind because you and I had a conversation last time we met, and it was I was asking you about the importance of the quality of the data, and and it's possible that the AI would be learning stuff that's not actually true. I've had a further thought of that, and I what I've come to realize, and this is maybe why I'm a genius, right? Is because. AI will eventually learn whatever that formulaic process is for the truth, whatever that natural rhythm is for the truth. So it will then be able to go and, I hate to use this word, debunk all of the mistruths. And isn't that like a powerful statement to think about? Yeah, absolutely. And to to look at an automated way of doing that, some of the big AI labs are trying to do that in a manual way, and I don't think there's any value in trying to do any of this manually. You know, they're trying to do, here's how you identify fake news, or here are the bad words that you should look out for. 
massive, well, not a waste of time, but a very, very early step in its evolution. Because like you say, it will be able to determine what's cool and what's not. You know, it'll be able to know that there was Nazi Germany. It's important for it to know that that existed. We don't want to eliminate or censor that. And it will also know that um, Nazi Germany was not so good. And then it'll know that there was an Anthony Robbins and that that might be more valuable in terms of context and in terms of truth. So, yeah, I think certainly what some of the big labs are doing, Facebook AI, um, Allen AI out of the US. No relation. Open AI. No, uh, that one's Paul Allen, A-L-L-E-N, no relation. Uh, some of those guys are, are doing some really exciting stuff and the more that they automate that and the more that it evolves and it's evolving very, very quickly, uh, I think we'll see some of the best of humanity coming out of it. Yeah, and that's one thing that strikes me about you, Alan. You're very, very optimistic for the future of AI and, and the neural link, that's this type of thing as well. And uh, Do you happen to know roughly when singularity is due to happen? Because I heard it was about 100 <laughs> years from now. <laughs> What a question. <laughs> and I suppose, can you explain what singularity is? Because there'd be a lot of people that don't know, because I only learned about it recently. Yeah, cool. I'm not a big fan of buzzwords, and the singularity is a buzzword. In the simplest, plainest English, singularity is the point in time when AI will be smarter than all of humanity and will be making its own decisions. So, and Hollywood hasn't been great to us here, but picture something like HAL uh, or picture a, a good and benevolent version of HAL. I reckon that's really close. I don't like making predictions. Uh, a lot of people have pulled their predictions back. So Ray Kurzweil said 2045, and he's one of the best people to listen to in the world. That's more than 20 years away. Elon Musk has just changed his prediction, probably because he was one of the founders of OpenAI and he saw what happened last year with this GPT-3 model. Elon is predicting 2025. So, you know, 40 months away. <laughs> I think he's, he's far closer to the truth. Um, I think this is around the corner. This is not five or 10 years away. This is in measured in months and uh, I'm excited about it. What does this mean for humanity? All the good stuff, man. Like, it's so easy to go, oh, I watched some movies and that robot in Ex Machina was scary or Hal was scary. But that's not reality. Have a look at some of the things that AI has already been doing. So I mentioned Eric Schmidt earlier in this conversation. In his new book, he talks about an AI that was given all the different chemical compounds that exist in medicine and all the different antibiotics that we've already got that we're developing immunity to. And the AI took these hundreds of millions of compounds, went crazy with it, and created a new antibiotic that had never been seen before, is currently in trials, is essentially solving a facet of medicine and of health that humans have not been able to solve. I see it doing the same thing for all of our big challenges. What about world hunger? What about poverty? What about leisure in general, particularly when we bring in VR to it? 
What about climate change? For those that want to talk about climate change, all of these things are possible and some of them are already underway with solutions being brought to life by AI. So I see more and more of that happening really, really quickly. Again, not not in five or 10 years. Some of this stuff's happening today. Some of this stuff has already happened. The antibiotics, the the use of AI in, in various fields where it's even helping develop its own hardware, like developing its own AI chips to make itself smarter and more efficient. <laughs> it's so interesting to think about. And it, and now that you've made it way more real than, than what I even thought, you know, from 100 years to, to like a couple, uh, what can people do to prepare themselves for this inevitable change? Another big question, Laban, you, you're pulling out the big ones. That's such a hard one to answer. I mean, I can say I've gone and bought shares in in AI ETFs and bought a lot of NVIDIA <laughs> and become aware of AI, of course, and helped with the zeitgeist or helped with the, the understanding of AI through these organizations. I think just being ahead of the curve and being able to know that this is coming can be valuable. There's no real downside because AI will solve any concerns we've got with, oh, they took our jobs, like the, the South Park quote. Um, that, that won't actually be as big a concern as we probably automatically go to because we've also got to solve this concept of income, what's going to happen when so much stuff has been automated, not just from software AI, but also from hardware, the the crazy robots that have come out of places like Boston Dynamics or Toyota that are changing the face of the planet. I mean, even here in Australia, you've got places like Coles and Amazon that have got their warehouses completely automated now. So no workers, there's just robots flying around getting everything done. And again, I only see that as a good thing. I only see that as a benefit to allowing these humans to have a better life rather than running around a factory. They've got an opportunity to go and play with something else. Yeah, I agree. And something else that just popped into my head as well as as you're talking about this, I think a great way to plan is to live an honourable, truthful life because if AI is going to reveal falsities, if that's even a word, and mistruths and lies, now is probably a good time to start living a life of, of truth. And and what that might look like for you is is very different to me, for example. And I, you know, I don't do all the right things all the time. I, I inherently try to be a good person because I understand about the law of attraction and, and bringing that negativity in my life. But I think... Yeah, I think that's a good place to go. Like start living a life of just being honest with yourself, being able to set clear boundaries. And because if it's all going to come out in the wash, like the more you get onto it now, the less dirty laundry you'll have to hang out later on. What are your thoughts on that? Man, that's fascinating. Not just from a general point, but also from a really specific point. You remember that um, Ashley Madison leak? Must have been five, 10 years ago now. The the affairs website, yeah. Yeah, that leaked its in- website, sorry. Mm, that leaked its entire database. So everyone who'd ever signed up to it, um, <laughs> that all their contact details were leaked. 
think about that in the context of AI. So when we're grandpas, when, when you and I are retired, <laughs> the data joining is probably a better term for that, but it's going to be able to go back through all of our Instagram stuff or our Twitter stuff or every email that we've ever written and join all those together and have those available. So what was granddad writing when he was 30 years old, 40 years old? And uh, how how much integrity was he showing? <laughs> could be a really fascinating look. Let's just say I hope AI has sorted out cancel culture by then <laughs> or I'm fucked. <laughs> I've been, I've been deleting Facebook posts that I made from 11 and 12 years ago. You know, the, the person I was then versus now is yeah. <laughs> very different. This is this is one of the most thought-provoking conversations I reckon I've ever had, Alan, because it's forced me to to really reflect at a lot of areas of my life. And I'm ex- I am excited mm-hmm. to know I I cuz I want to know the truth. And I talk about this a lot. I want to know the truth so I can make an informed decision. And if a computer program mm. is going to become so super intelligent that it can work out all the wheat from the chafe, that to me is powerful. It's a lot of mm-hmm. like, I fucking told you so as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be pretty exciting. A, a lot of people say that we can't imagine it. I'm, I'm certainly one of the first to say that, you know, my imagination is limited. I'll definitely admit that leaders smarter than me. And some of my colleagues say where we're going is limited by what we're able to imagine. Some of the sci-fi writers, most of the sci-fi writers have not got anywhere near what is happening and what is about to happen. So being able to imagine where you sit with no job, with 100% leisure time, with all your needs taken care of, with as much income as you need, but maybe money doesn't mean as much as it means now, living in a virtual reality with no wires, so no, no, nothing in our brain but still access to something like Lita, living in any destination we'd like to. We, you and I could be sitting in, on a beach in Fiji right now and surrounded by all the toys and gadgets that we would like to play with, what does that open up for us? What does integrity look like when there are no business meetings? Elon Musk is saying there's not going to be any language very soon because it's all thought transfer. And a lot of people in the BMI, the brain-machine interface world, are looking at that as well already. What does that open up for us? What does, what does humanity become? Uh, and I, I know I've made this point a couple of times, but I want to make it one more time. This is not futuristic anymore. This is not looking out for, oh, yeah, when when the future's here and the flying skateboards. This will be way before flying skateboards. This will be in the next few months. What does this open up for us? And how would you like to be in that space? <laughs> how would you like to show up as a human being in that place where there's less of these kind of restrictions and shackles that have come about? Man, my mind is really just going crazy just thinking about the possibilities because it's going to solve all the problems around interstellar travel and being able to populate other planets. What I think it will be a constant, right? I don't know where I heard this the other day. Uh, might have been an Elon Musk quote. He was talking about 
Um, people try so often focus on, you know, what's going to change, and uh, and you need to focus on what's going to stay the same. I think from an evolutionary point of view, the human body uh, will never catch up to the speed at which AI is going, and certainly in my own head, and maybe this this will be wrong, that we we need to allow our bodies what they are evolved to do, and that's human touch. And, you know, you talk mm-hmm. about being given all the money. I think having a purpose is going to be so mm-hmm. important as well. Like you mm-hmm. just can't be on holiday the whole time. It just You'll go crazy. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of those fundamentals will, will become very apparent of what need what needs to happen for a human to survive. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely brilliant and worth exploring deeper if we've got another 12 hours. Um, touch is amazing. Touch is touch is absolutely necessary. You'll have heard of the orphanage study that was around quite a while ago now. Before we had ethics committees, where they looked at what would happen with these uh, orphans if they weren't exposed to touch, human touch. And I think there was a separate study where they weren't exposed to words either. They weren't allowed to talk to them, and uh, the results weren't that surprising. The orphans that weren't touched and weren't spoken to just died because that is how important it is to people, to humans, to have this, you know, hugs or a handshake or or just this interaction with people. So you're right there, and I wonder how that's going to translate in, in the world of VR. I don't have an answer to purpose because if you look at something like Professor Marty Seligman's PERMA model, P-E-R-M-A, positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, accomplishment, I don't know how you answer accomplishment, meaning, and purpose without doing what we're doing. And there's not going to be any reason to do what we're doing right now in a few months, certainly less than five to 10 years. So if there's no need for you and I to write books or to speak on a podcast or to clean the kitchen or to cook dinner or to go to work and write reports <laughs> what is there how do we meet that need of meaning and accomplishment and purpose damn i'm just getting started with this old podcasting thing as well i would have, i'd be up to a few little <laughs> subs by then <laughs> and maybe there'll be an alternative i don't know because if you have complete access to everyone's thoughts and you have that completely augmented by AI, is there any distinction to listening to Mr. Laban Ditchburn versus Joe Rogan versus the 12-year-old who's already at the level of of a professor versus that 90-year-old grandma who just got a brain-machine interface fitted and she has access to the sum of all human knowledge as well, plus her entire genetic line, Is there any difference between any of them if they're using the same AI? Uh, and I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, and I, I know that that human beings are one of the most adaptable creatures on the planet. And I and I just it's so interesting and really exciting to think about what will be required of us in order to attain that fulfillment and, and a lot of the other stuff that we're talking about as well. This is the part where my brain's starting to hurt a little bit. <laughs> uh, like I'm sure you're used to this a bit more, Alan, but uh, <laughs> for people listening to this that want to know more about you and the work you're doing, I know we've touched on your YouTube channel, but how else can they learn about what you're doing? 
All my stuff is at my website, which is just lifearchitect.ai. And that has everything from links to Lita and the technology behind Lita through to some of the ethics of AI collection of the most important papers in this field of AI from the last 18, 24 months. Uh, a look at Aurora AI, which is my spiritual AI that that goes and provides messages to humanity. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there and there's some links to some other cool people in there, but that's kind of a nice central hub, lifearchitect.ai. Do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today? <laughs> I love not having an answer to any of this uh, of these final questions in that I I admit to having a, a limited imagination here. I can't see if we get to where people like Elon Musk are putting us, not where they think we're going to get to, but where they are providing us access to through AI and through brain-machine interfaces. I don't see exactly what that looks like. And that, in a way, is exciting, but it's also one of the first times that I can recall not being able to come up with options. Like you say, probably just don't want to, you don't want to just sit on a beach. You don't just want a holiday forever. Um, You might be able to provide purpose to yourself in a simulation, and certainly for a lot of people that's popular. One of the most popular apps at the moment on Oculus VR, uh, using the Oculus Quest is an app called Job Simulator. And it's as ridiculous as it sounds. You sit down at a desk and you do your work in in virtual reality. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is that what we're going to do? Are we going to simulate this idea of purpose because AI is doing everything else for us? so, yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity of, of not having an answer to big questions because that's what I pose to my clients every day. And I don't think they feel frustrated by it. I, I think they they feel confronted by it and it's a little bit jarring because school has a black and white or a yes and a no. And coaching, as you're aware, is these really open questions that don't have a right or a wrong answer. Um and in some cases, don't have an answer at all. And I think this is one of them. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Alan D. Thompson. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.